Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host, Jared St. Clair. It's good to be with you on another beautiful day. I am so excited because it's my favorite time of year. It's my favorite time of year. That's not the case for everyone. I know that. And I'm going to talk about that quite a bit. We're uh, just a week out from Thanksgiving, less than a week out. And then, of course, uh, Christmas rolls around and New Year's and so on. And uh, I love this season. I always have. I uh, kicked it off with a really fun um, concert, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, with my best friend. We uh, really, really enjoyed the show. I think it was my 15th time going. Yeah, I'm spoiled, I know. One of the reasons I uh, have a lot to be grateful for. But uh, I'm going to share a lot of stuff with you today. Two weeks ago on the show, we talked about why we obey. Today, we're going to talk about why we conform. That's obedience's uh, twin sister, I guess you could say. And uh, we're going to talk about why it is a you know kind of built into our psyche to conform and kind of uh, do what others are doing. We're going to talk about the research that's been done on it and why it's important that we ask questions before we just blindly go along with what the rest of the herd are doing. So we're going to go into that in a little bit. Uh, And then we're also going to talk about uh, the science of gratitude. With Thanksgiving coming around the corner, I have uh, dug up some research that I had not yet seen, uh, and it's uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff done on people specifically with mental health issues and uh, a a test of gratitude to determine how they respond. And uh, yeah, it's cool. Really, really cool. I've also got a couple of challenges for you at the end of the show. This thing is loaded. I'd be very lucky to get it all in in an hour, but uh, hey, I'm excited to do it. Of course, Vitality Radio is always about health, nutrition, fitness, alternatives to drugs and surgeries. We're going to talk about a lot of the mental side of things today, more so than the uh, nutrition side and the supplemental side, but we'll touch on some of those things a little bit as well. All right, without uh, going into anything else, let's jump right into this why we conform stance. And, uh, you know, I wanted to pose this as a morning rant because that was the mood I was in two weeks ago when I was trying to figure this out. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to rant about it today. So sorry to you who uh, love uh, hearing my rants. This will still be very useful, but we're going to skip the rant sound and we're going to jump right into this uh, excellent uh, research that's been done on conformity uh, that I found on the Free Thought Project. Excellent website loaded with great videos. These have already been posted to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Vitality Radio. I would highly encourage you watch these videos and uh, jump on their website and see some of the others. I've already saved uh, to uh, YouTube maybe 12 to 15 of their videos that I've uh, yet to watch. One of the things I love about them is they're very informative, but they're very concise, somewhere between about five and 10 minutes per video. And uh, this video on conformity was excellent. Let's jump right in. In the 1950s, a psychologist named Solomon Ash asked uh, individuals to solve 750 variations of a question. 
Basically, the question was about the length of lines drawn on a paper. For instance, one page might have had a line four inches long, a line six inches long, and a line eight inches long. The question would be simply, which line is the longest? In total, there were only three incorrect answers out of 750 uh, quizzes that were uh, handed out. Not too surprisingly, because, you know, this was a super simple test to figure out. However, the problem gets a lot more interesting when you bring people together. Ash brought a group of people into a room and got them to solve 18 of these line questions. All of the group members were actors except for one single subject. All of the actors were told to answer 12 out of the 18 questions correctly, or sorry, incorrectly. So two thirds wrong. After running this experiment several times, it was found that subjects would conform to the group's incorrect answers a third of the time. 75% of subjects conformed to the group's incorrect answers at least one time, and 25% of subjects, only 25% of subjects, never conformed at all. Remember, when subjects were asked to solve this task alone, less than half of 1% of people guessed incorrectly. The task was simple to do. So when they had the actors in there uh, behaving in a way that was wrong, basically guessing 12 out of 18 of a really, really simple quest wrong, it was very obvious that those who then would also guess wrong that were not actors were conforming to the group. Ash asked participants why they had conformed, and they gave various answers. Some said that they didn't know if they were actually right, so they were second-guessing themselves because everybody else seemed to think the answer was, you know, A, and they were trying to figure out, well, why the heck do I think it's B? That type of thing, right? And uh, some said that they didn't want to stand out from the group. This leads us to the different types of conformity. Conversion conformity versus compliance conformity, and normative versus informational. So we're going to get into this, and we'll start with conversion versus compliance. Conversion, when an individual conforms to a belief or behavior, both publicly and privately, they have undergone a conversion. Since the individual was truly has truly adopted the belief, this is the strongest form of conformity. This is often represented in religious conformity, for instance. However, it is often found in other areas of life as well. And you'll see this a lot on uh, social media, Facebook and things like that, where there is an overwhelming um, you know, consensus on something, and people don't want to question the consensus. They just take it as the gospel truth, this is what it is, and this is how I believe, and the dissenters that are out there saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that might not be it, uh, heck with them, they must be wrong because you know 90% of us feel this way about it. You also, it's really interesting in politics, and this is all just me uh, kind of thinking out loud here, but you'll notice that in politics in America, there's basically two sides, right? There's the conservative and the liberal or the Republican and the Democrat or right wing, left wing, whatever. And there are not a lot of people in the middle somewhere. Uh, there are not a lot of people on the extremes uh, on either side. There's a whole bunch of people that are just kind of in that middle group of right wing versus left wing, let's say. 
And of course, we recognize in politics, and we talk about it all the time, you hear about it all the time, that that's a real problem because we can't get a lot of centrist thinking, and so we don't get a lot done because uh, the one side is constantly ridiculing the other side. And um, if it's, you know, if there's a Democrat in office, he ought to be impeached. And if there's a Republican in office, he ought to be impeached. And if you look at the last line of presidents we've had, maybe they all should have been impeached. But regardless of that, there is a real issue when we cease to listen to the other side's argument. Now, it's important that you understand what I'm saying here, or maybe don't hear what I'm not saying, and that is that just because you listen to somebody else's argument doesn't mean that you have to suddenly agree to that argument. But isn't it valuable? Isn't it really valuable to listen to the argument? A a, a good example in politics would be this. And I'm not a particularly political person because I kind of uh, have my own way of seeing things, and I would say that I'm far from either a Republican or a Democrat, uh, more libertarian in the way that I see the world and, and politics. But aside from my personal politics, I think it's important to understand that the vast majority of people who watch the Democratic debates are people who plan to vote Democrat. And the vast majority of people who watch the Republican debates are intending to vote Republican. So they're just trying to decide which one. So they're really looking at it and saying, I know this is how I feel. I'm in this group. So I just need to find the best man or woman in this group that I'm interested in voting for. But maybe it would be beneficial to listen to the other side, even if we don't intend to vote that way, to get a feel for why they might be thinking the way that they are. Just a little you know, thought candy there, I guess, to think about. Very interesting stuff, I think. Religious conformity is something that we see a lot, uh, where we, you know, they talk about conversion, which is very much, I think, a a, a religious term in in many ways. And uh, people adopt the behavior publicly. So, yeah, they go to church and they do the things that people can see them doing. And then they also do those same things at home that they talk about doing at church. You know, that's true conversion. So, what's the difference between conversion and just compliance? When an individual conforms to a belief or behavior publicly, but not privately, they have complied. When Ash ran a variation of the experiment that allowed the subjects to write their answer down privately, conformity rates dropped dramatically. So, it's highly likely that subjects in that experiment complied, but were not converted. So go back to the experiment again. It's these three lines on a piece of paper, right? And one's four inches, six inches, and eight eight inches. And they're asked, what's the longest one? And of course, the eight-inch one is pretty obviously the longest one. And so when you can write those things down in secret, so nobody can see you or second-guess your work, conformity goes down. But when they had to answer within the group, conformity rates went way up. So why do people comply when it's not private? Let's talk about normative versus informational conformity. Normative conformity occurs when an individual fears social rejection. Social rejection is a perfectly normal fear. It's, you can feel that as a, a child, you know, first going to school. And, and the older you get, I think the more deeply ingrained it becomes because you'll recognize if you have little children, and I do, I have a, you know, a seven-year-old now who just turned seven and I've got one who's turning 10. And my experience has been that my seven-year-old cares a lot less about what he's wearing 
how his hair is done than my 10-year-old does. Now, maybe part of that is her being a girl and him being a boy. There's a lot of different societal things that play a role in all of this stuff. But I do remember that when my daughter was younger, uh, her concern was far less about those things. And interestingly enough, she's far less concerned about uh, things that people can't see, like her messy bedroom, than she is about people, the things that people can see, like her hairdo. Uh, or her gel nails, things like that. So we, we see that in children, but as we get older, especially I think when we get into these junior high and high school years, we recognize that conformity is a big deal. And oftentimes the initial stage of compliance, you know, hey, these guys aren't wearing coats to school. It must not be cool to wear a coat to school in the wintertime, so I'm not going to wear a coat to school, uh, eventually becomes conversion uh, in many cases when all of a sudden you're like, why would I ever wear a coat to school? Well, it's obvious to me. I'm a 47-year-old guy who gets cold when I don't wear a coat in the wintertime, but it doesn't seem obvious to the 14-year-old who's standing outside waiting for a bus and a T-shirt. So you'll see that there's all these different things that you can point to in life that show how conformity works. And sometimes we can kind of grow out of some of that uh, thought process. I think the older we get in many cases, certainly in my case, the less I've been willing to conform. In fact, I'm probably the least conforming person uh, I've been or version of myself ever. Uh, and I have always respected, though, over the years, those who were nonconformists. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later uh, as we uh, dig a little deeper into this. So, again, social rejection is a major thing. And we have to recognize it. I think ask ourselves, are we doing this that we don't necessarily feel good about simply because we don't want other people to feel a certain way about us? We often you know, want to feel accepted by the group, and so we get rid of internal tension by just publicly conforming. Uh, normative conformity often goes hand in hand with compliance. Again, publicly, we behave one way. Privately, maybe we behave a different way. For instance, um, uh, let me give you a couple of examples of, of conformity that are you know, public displays of conformity. I mentioned earlier that I was at the Trans-Siberian Orchestra concert. I go to this every year pretty much. Sometimes I go twice a year. It's kind of crazy. But um, this year's concert was particularly good. But one thing that the lead guitarist, uh, who's the band leader, um, Al Petrelli, always does is he gives a shout out to the troops. And he says, you know, I want everybody to stand up and raise your you know, hands and clap for uh, the, those men and women in the armed forces. And guess what? Almost everybody, 6,000 plus people in the audience uh, got up and did just that. Not everybody did. A few people stayed seated. And, the, the, you know, we have this big uh, to-do about Colin Kaepernick right now in the news. Who, it, it doesn't seem to go away. You know, he took a knee during the national anthem. And a lot of people, in my opinion, misread that as uh, a way of disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the troops, disrespecting, you know, whatever. And in reality, I think it's, it was just his way of using his stage to uh, speak up for what he believes. Now, whether you agree with what he believes or not doesn't matter to me. Uh, it, it, Colin Kaepernick, you know, f for what it's worth is, you know, I, I think some of the stuff he says is is 
kind of silly and some of the stuff he says is dead on accurate. Um, and so it's not really a matter of do you agree with the stance? It's a matter of whether or not you agree with the way he did it. And th- we seem very divided uh, in this uh, country on that. Is it okay to take a knee during the uh, national anthem? And I believe uh, for what it's worth that if you have a stage and you want to protest that uh, you ought to be able to do that. It's part of our uh, First Amendment rights. It's one of the things that is guaranteed in our in our Bill of Rights. And so I don't have a problem with it at all. And I don't think that it's a way of saying, yeah, you know, I, heck with the troops. You know, we had this big thing with the quote unquote troops back in the Vietnam era, which, you know, I was, wasn't even alive during most of that. Uh, but I've certainly uh, watched the documentaries and heard the stories. And uh, these, these poor uh, men that were over there fighting were treated like uh, scoundrels when they came home. When truly it was the government sending them there to fight that was, if there was something wrong with that war, if it was immoral, then it was the government that created that immorality and these men were following orders. Now, there's a lot of stuff that can go into this and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but is it okay if you don't want to stand for the flag ceremony or stand and put your hand over your heart for the uh, national anthem. And that's going to be a personal question that you have to ask yourself. But I'll tell you what makes it very difficult for people to do is that everybody else is doing it, right? So you're in a crowd of 6,000 people and Maybe you don't want to. I'll be. Uh, I got great seats for a jazz game coming up that were given to me and my son. That we get from uh, uh, this uh, friend of ours every year, and we'll be kind of front and center, like third row. Uh, might even be second row. I can't remember. Uh, we've been even on the floor. It's it's a cool experience for sure. But uh, what if I didn't want to put my hand on my heart uh, during the flag ceremony? Would that be wrong? Well, it would be perceived, I think, by the vast majority of the 20,000 people in there that, yeah, that would be wrong. Why is that guy not doing what we do and saluting our flag? Does he hate the troops? Does he hate our country? Is he not a patriot? You get the idea. Let's talk about something a little bit different than, than that. What about the, per- the person who um, is at the Smiths or the Harmons who is the checker? And you've got uh, the, the the let me paint the picture for you, right? You're you're there. You've got the checker there. You've got the bagger, and you've got the customer behind you. In most cases, and the last question when you're inserting your credit card into the machine is, would you like to round up for cancer? Well, who wouldn't? And what kind of a scoundrel wouldn't round up for cancer, right? I mean, it's less than a buck. Come on, cheapskate. Well, I don't round up for cancer. I don't. Why? Because I can't afford it? I mean, look, I'm sitting there at Smith's and most of the stuff in my cart is organic. So it costs, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% more than the regular stuff, sometimes 100% more than the regular stuff. I clearly have a priority of spending more money on my groceries than maybe the average consumer does, meaning that I can afford to do that. I'm very blessed that I can afford to buy organic produce. So I could obviously round up, even if it's 99 cents, you know, the maximum roundup. If my total was 2501, I could round up to $26. It 
I wouldn't lose any sleep over that 99 cents. I don't even like change. So, you know, hey, that's awesome. But I won't round up for cancer. I won't round up for the Leukemia Fund. I won't round up for the American Cancer Society, the Susan G. Komen Fund. There are a bunch of them I will not round up for. I will not donate five bucks. I'll not write my name on a balloon or so on and so forth. Why? Because I have a personal conviction about where my money goes for charitable reasons. There are charities that I trust, and I will absolutely uh, deliver extra money to when I have that opportunity. But I don't trust most of the charities in the medical uh, side of things because I think most of the money they're spending is spent poorly and is propagating to a large extent lies as opposed to actual research that might actually save lives. So I have a problem with that. It's a controversial stance, I'm sure, for many people, especially for people who have family members who've been, you know, touched by cancer. But you know what? My dad died with Parkinson's disease. I don't round up for Parkinson's disease either because the vast majority of people that are uh, researching these things or researching for the quote unquote cure. They're not looking at the cause so much, or at least if they are looking at the cause, then they're looking for a drug to prevent the symptoms, not uh, a preventative method to prevent the actual root cause. And I just have a different way of looking at things. But when I was at Harmon's just yesterday with my daughter, they said, hey, do you want to donate to the Utah Food Bank? And I said, yeah, I'll donate to the Utah Food Bank. So I threw five bucks extra on my card for the Utah Food Bank. I'm okay with that one. I like what they do. I'm sure some of the money doesn't get spent that great, but I think most of it does. I've looked into it and I think it's a good, solid charity. And so it all depends. But you know what? I always feel a little self-conscious. I second guess myself a little bit when I say no. I don't want to round up for cancer. Well, what are they using? It's a it's a guilt tactic. I mean, these charities, they know that if you're standing there and you can um, afford to, even if you can't sometimes or maybe shouldn't, that the peer pressure of people you don't even know, the cashier across from you, the bagger and the person behind you, that you may never see again, or if you do, they're not going to remember you and you're not going to remember them. Those people, that pressure is enough to say, yeah, I'll round up. Eh, it's a little bit conniving, but it is what it is. I'm a charitable person. I don't have any problem with that. And my previous stance in terms of the flag and everything else, these are just points that I'm making. In some cases, I agree. Some cases, I disagree. And I respect your decision to do the same. But the important thing is that I respect your decision to do the same, and I would hope that you would respect mine, and that we don't have to comply just because social socially it's unacceptable not to. So uh, let's see. That, that uh, uh, kind of got off track there a little bit. Let's talk about the last version of uh, conformity called informational conformity. Informational conformity occurs when an individual is unsure about what to believe, and so they look to the group for guidance. I think this is really, really, really common when it comes to healthcare. Informational conformity often leads to conversion, and this is a thing. There's two parts to it as far as I, I can tell. We, for the most part, do what we're told when it comes to our health care. And there's two things going on. First off, almost everybody is doing certain things. They're going to, you know, their annual physical they're going to, um, you know, it, it varies in different 
aspects of medicine for sure. But there, uh, let's talk about the well child uh, checkups that happen. The, the well child checkups, in my opinion, are are largely of no worth. Uh, we've talked about on previous episodes of, of Vitality Radio that the annual checkup uh, for individuals, the annual physical, is probably a bad idea. Um, I mentioned before, and <laughs> I got uh, I got busted a little bit on it, but it was it was an, in good fun. That when I was a scout leader, I for years uh, until my boys got into the troop, I would fill out my uh, physical for summer camp myself under a doctor's pseudonym. I wasn't going to go get a physical. The, the silly physical they asked for is ridiculous anyway, just so I could go to summer camp. I knew I was capable of going to summer camp. I didn't want to spend the money, waste the money. And it wasn't the money thing. It was more of a stance on, I think this is ridiculous. And so I'm not going to do it. But they wouldn't let me go unless there was paperwork. So I, you know, I forged a document or two. Yeah, I did. And I didn't do that for my kids. I guess I didn't want to teach them that, you know, that was kind of a dishonest thing to do. Uh, I was torn on that one because it was a dishonest to do or was I just, uh, you know, not following the system. And uh, eh, if I had to do over again, I mean, may have forged theirs too. But regardless, there are times when people just do what they're told because they're told to do it by their doctor because that's an authority figure. And then also their sister's doing it. Oh, here's another one. The mammogram, the annual mammogram. Once you get to uh, 40 years old, is, is that something that everybody should do? Well, there's a ton of research, a ton of excellent research showing that's a terrible idea. In the European Union, it's been pushed to every two years and starting at the age of 50, as opposed to every year and starting at the age of 40. And, and uh, if you say, hey, maybe you should look into a thermography instead of a mammogram, they're going to smack you down and say, what are you talking about? That's garbage. Well, it's not garbage. It's actually awesome. It's better than a mammogram, but it's not recognized by the FDA as the standard of care. And so the standard of care is a mammogram. And even though a mammogram probably, based on the research, increases your cancer risk by about 1% every time you get one, and they recommend you start at 40 and end at 70, that's 30% increase in odds. And we do it anyway because our doctor tells us to do it and everybody else is doing it. That's a horrible reason to do a medical procedure. A horrible reason. Including the reason my doctor said I need to do this. And I will reiterate what I always do on the show. I am not your doctor and I don't care to be your doctor. But it is important to understand that that doctor, whoever he or she is, is not the final authority on your health. You are. And you must educate yourself on what you should and should not be doing for your health, not just do it because the doctor says so. Because for years, doctors have been wrong about a lot of things. And in my opinion, right now, they're wrong about mammograms. So, conformity uh, informational conformity where we do it because we're unsure that we shouldn't do it and we don't take the time to research it to determine that we should or should not do it that's a really really important thing and we have to recognize that if we conform because we're not sure what the alternative is that's a bad reason don't do it because you're being told to don't do it because everybody else is doing it. 
you know, the old adage, uh, the old saying, well, if somebody jumps off a cliff, everybody else jumps off a cliff, you're going to jump off a cliff? Well, you know what? It's true. Except that at the end of the cliff, we know what's going to happen. We don't know what happens at the end of 30 years of mammograms. Well, we kind of do. There's pretty good research, but we often ignore that stuff or we don't even know about it because it's not publicized very much in the mainstream media. So if we don't dig, we don't find. Conformity is a real problem and it needs to be reviewed. And uh, I'm, I'm running way over time here and I, I have to talk about gratitude because I think that's maybe as important or more important than this topic. So I'm just going to wrap up with this and say, say this about conformity. Before you make a decision, whether it's to take a vitamin supplement, to take a pharmaceutical that has been recommended by your doctor, to do a surgery or a procedure that's been recommended, um, to eat a certain way, you know, keto or paleo or whatever, please, please do the research. Don't do it because your friends are doing it. Don't do it because your doctor said you should do it. I know that's like heresy. I get that. Well, you're supposed to do what your doctor says. Well, no, not necessarily. Your doctor is a resource the same way as your auto mechanic is. And you should listen to what he or she has to say. They went to medical school and they learned a lot of stuff. But that doesn't make them the authority on your health. You are the authority on your health. And you get to make the decisions about what makes you healthy or what makes you unhealthy. And conformity should never be part of that equation. Okay, I'm going to cut to a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about the ultimate nonconformist for a few minutes, and then I'm going to talk about gratitude and how it impacts your brain, how it impacts your mental health, and how it can even make you smarter. We're going to talk about that when I come back. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this is Vitality Radio. During this COVID-19 challenge, Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful now offers curbside pickup. Just call 801-292-6662. We will take your order by phone and have it ready when you get to our parking lot. We can also ship product to most of Utah next day. Give us a call at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Thank you. All righty. Welcome back to Vitality Radio. I'm your host. My name is Jared St. Clair, and it is good to be with you again. I really, really like this show. It's. I wish it was two hours long because I found so much good stuff to share. So I was uh, preparing the show last night, and as the hours got later, I needed a little break uh, from uh, reading about conformity and gratitude and things like that. And in fact, I didn't even know what the second half of the show was going to be on. I was only on conformity at the time. And so I jumped on Facebook just to get a little diversion. And when I did, I saw some Facebook memories. It's the best part about Facebook, in my opinion, is reminding you of stuff that happened and showing, you know, sending, seeing pictures of your kids when they were younger and so on and so forth. And uh, it jumped right in my face that this was the 10 year last night was the 10 year anniversary of my father's death. And, uh, you know, I knew it was coming up because this time of year is, is pretty intense for me. Uh, when he died on uh, November 22nd, 
uh, 10 years ago, he uh, died on a Sunday. And Wednesday was his funeral, uh, which I uh, was blessed to speak at and uh, give some tribute to my, my wonderful, wonderful father. And then Thursday was Thanksgiving Day. And Friday, my daughter, who I was talking about in the first segment, Nora, was born. So over that six-day period, a whole heck of a lot of stuff happened, and it was intense. And it was awesome in many ways. My dad had been sick for a long time. He needed to be uh, put uh, to rest with this physical body. So there was gratitude for that, even though, boy, I missed the heck out of him. The last time I uh, um, really got to do anything with him before he was admitted to the hospital was feeding him uh, his Thanksgiving dinner uh, a week or so prior to, to that. And even though Thanksgiving hadn't happened yet, it was uh, something they did at the center that was caring for him. And there was a lot of emotions, as you can imagine. Well, last night, a lot of those emotions flooded right back into me. But what was really interesting is when I was thinking about my dad, on my computer screen, on my document that I prepare for each show each week, it said divergence in big, bold print. Divergence was the last part of the conformity conversation. And my dad diverted, man. <laughs> I said before the break, I was going to talk about the ultimate nonconformist. I'm sure there are those who conformed even less, but there can't be many of them. My dad was a, he was his own man. And whether you liked it or not, or whether the crowd agreed or not, did not matter one lick to him, not even a little bit. Uh, he was amazing, and I always respected his level of nonconformity, noncompliance. He was so consistent with that. A little history about my dad, because I think it's important uh, before we get into this gratitude conversation. He was raised in a really, really bad way. He had an alcoholic father who consistently ridiculed him. And uh, I didn't know a lot about it. My dad didn't talk about his childhood much. In fact, my grandpa lived right next door for years uh, to where I live right now in my, in my parents' old home. And uh, I can still see the, the stairs to their apartment uh, in the basement next door. I loved my grandpa. He used to fix my bike. He uh, he would uh, you know razz me all the time. We had a great relationship, and I had no idea that he was kind of a scoundrel. And uh, I learned the most when I contacted my uncle Billy, my my dad's younger brother, uh, a few years after my dad had passed away, and he gave me the real scoop about how dad was raised. He was ridiculed constantly by uh, his father, even when his father wasn't drunk, and then he was uh, significantly more abusive when he was drunk. And when dad turned 18, he fled the coop as fast as he possibly could. He joined the uh, Air Force. He was stationed in Hawaii. He found some good friends, and he became his own man. And he had no one to model parenting after, you know, fatherhood. His father wasn't good at it. And his father was, he had no model either. And there was this cycle of bad fathers. And my dad said, no. I ain't going to do that. I'm going to be a dad, and I'm going to be a damn good one. And he was. He was an amazing father. I couldn't ask for a better, better one. My dad, his favorite song was My Way by Frank Sinatra. And he did such a beautiful job of living his life in that way. I mean, he used to wear Birkenstocks with dark socks to church. <laughs> to church and people would laugh and and I got I caught grief for it from my friends 
My dad was just a different guy, and he didn't care. He believed Birkenstocks were better for his feet, so that's what he wore. He believed whole wheat bread was better for his kids, so that's what he fed them. And the list goes on and on and on, and I had a a pretty long list, actually, and I just don't have time uh, to get into it. But I will tell you this. As a nonconformist, my dad made changes in the world and the people around him, including myself, that cannot be made by someone who just simply follows the herd. There would not be Vitality Radio if there was not Clyde St. Clair. There would not be Vitality Nutrition if there was not Clyde St. Clair. And there wouldn't be me in my current nonconformist state if there was not my father. So, Dad, I'm so grateful for you this Thanksgiving. In 10 years, I can't believe you've been gone that long. I love you. And uh, thank you for uh, doing what you did for me and instilling this fire in me that I have, this passion about the things that that we did uh, while you were here and that I'm continuing to do uh, since you've been gone. Okay, enough with the high emotion. Let's get to gratitude. Now, Thanksgiving is around the corner, and uh, gratitude is this thing. It's fleeting, I think, oftentimes, and I don't even know if we celebrate Thanksgiving anymore in this country in terms of being thankful. We just turn into a bunch of gluttons and eat a whole bunch of food, and I hope that there are traditions within your family where we actually focus on Thanksgiving, giving thanks being grateful for the wonderful things that we have because my, oh my, the worst among us have so much more than so many other people, than the vast majority of the people in this world. If you're listening to this show right now, you have the capability of either listening online, which means you have internet access, or on the radio, which means, well, you have a stereo somewhere in your car or in your house or somewhere else. And if you have a car stereo, you have a car we got to be grateful, people. we got to be grateful. So let's talk about what gratitude actually does. 300 adults were studied, mostly college students, though, so young adults, who were seeking mental health counseling at a university. They were recruited, uh, they recruited these participants just before they began their first session of counseling, and on average, they reported clinically low levels of mental health at the time. The majority of people seeking counseling services at this university in general struggled with issues related to depression and anxiety. Now, this was a very interesting study because most studies on gratitude have been done on people who were considered mentally healthy to see what gratitude would do for them and how it changes your brain. And it changes your brain. There's awesome research on it I don't have time to share right now. I may talk a little bit more about gratitude in the coming weeks, but Interestingly enough, this was one of the uh, few studies I could find that was done on people who were quote-unquote mentally ill on some level, anxiety, depression, things like that. They randomly assigned their study participants into three groups. Although all three groups received counseling services, so everybody got a therapist, the first group was also instructed to write one letter of gratitude to another person each week for three weeks. Whereas the second group was asked to write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about negative experiences, and the third group did not do any kind of writing activity. What did they find? 
Compared with the participants who wrote about negative experiences or who only received counseling and didn't write at all, those who wrote gratitude letters reported significantly better mental health four weeks and 12 weeks after their writing exercise ended. This suggests that gratitude writing can be beneficial not just for healthy, well-adjusted individuals, but also for those who struggle with mental health concerns. In fact, it seems practicing gratitude on top of receiving psychological counseling carries greater benefits than counseling alone, even when that gratitude practice is brief. Because remember, this was a 12-week study, but they only asked them to write one letter per week for the first three weeks. And that's not all, they said. When they dug deeper into the results, they found indications of how gratitude might actually work on our minds and bodies. While not definitive, there are a few insights from the research suggesting what might be behind gratitude's psychological benefit. Number one, gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. By analyzing the words used by participants in each of the two writing groups, they were able to understand the mechanisms behind the mental health benefits of gratitude letter writing. They compared the percentage of positive emotion words, negative emotion words, and words like we or I that participants used in their writing. Not surprisingly, those in the gratitude writing group used a higher percentage of positive emotion words and we words and a lower proportion of negative emotion words than those in the other writing group. However, people who used more positive emotion words and more we words in their gratitude letters didn't necessarily have better mental health later. It was only when people used fewer negative emotion words in their letters that they were significantly more likely to report better mental health. So, I want to reiterate that because I think it's really important. Just saying positive things doesn't seem to be enough. Not saying negative things seems to be the biggest thing, at least in this study, that made the difference. And I think that's important because think about the society that we're in right now. It seems to me that most of the things I see on social media and most of the things I hear on news have a negative connotation to them. Even I'm guilty of this. I put things out there about Monsanto and the FDA and the CDC and the World Health Organization and things like that in many cases are negative things. And the more negativity we surround ourselves with, we know this, this is common knowledge, I think, the more negativity we surround ourselves with, the more negative we will become. But it's very interesting that just the difference in writing more negative words versus less negative words in these gratitude letters was a strong indicator of how big of an improvement people had in their mental health. Over three letters in three weeks over just a 12-week study period. Really, really interesting. Perhaps this suggests that gratitude letter writing produces better mental health by shifting one's attention away from toxic emotions, such as resentment and envy. When you write about how grateful you are to others and how much other people have blessed your life, it might become considerably harder for you to ruminate on your negative experiences. That makes sense, right? Number two, gratitude helps us even if we don't share. I'm going to uh, get through this quickly. Only 23% of the participants actually shared their letters with the people they wrote them to. 77% chose not to, but it didn't matter. The people who uh, wrote the letters, whether they actually gave them to someone or not, had a significant positive uh, benefit from writing the letters alone. Very interesting. Uh, 
This backs up the value of a gratitude journal in your daily life. Um, this is very personal, meaning you're not sharing it with anybody, but it is very profound. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the gratitude journal at the end. Number three, gratitude benefits take time. This was fascinating to me. It's important to note that the mental health benefits of gratitude writing in the study did not emerge immediately, but gradually accrued over time, although the different groups in our study did not differ in mental health levels one week after the end of the writing activities. Individuals in the group, gratitude group reported better mental health than the other four or sorry, than the others four weeks after the writing activities, and a difference in mental health became even larger 12 weeks after the writing activities. Now, that is awesome, because they wrote only during the first three weeks, but by the fourth week and the twelfth week, they had the highest levels 12 weeks in, you know, what, nine weeks after they stopped writing these letters, they're uh, they continued to see better improvement over the people who either wrote about their negative experiences or who did not write at all. That means that there is real positivity that carries forward with this, with gratitude, and continues to make positive changes in the brain as we go. That is awesome. Also, to go along with that, number four, gratitude has lasting effects on the brain. About three months after the psychotherapy sessions began, we took some of the people who wrote gratitude letters and compared them with those who didn't do any writing. We wanted to know if the brains were if their brains were processing information differently. We used an fMRI scanner to measure brain activity while people from each group did a pay-it-forward task. In that task, the individuals were regularly given a small amount of money by a nice person called the benefactor. The benefactor only asked that they pass the money on to someone if they felt grateful. Our participants then decided how much of the money, if any, to pass on to a worthy cause. We wanted to distinguish, distinguish donations motivated by gratitude from donations driven by other motivations like feelings of guilt or obligation. Remember the grocery store thing? So we asked the participants to rate how grateful they felt towards the benefactor and how much they wanted to help each charitable cause, as well as how guilty they would feel if they didn't help. We also gave them a questionnaire to measure how grateful they are in, the lives, in their lives in general. We found that across the participants... When people felt more grateful, their brain activity was distinct from brain activity related to guilt and the desire to help a cause. More specifically, we found that when people who are generally more grateful gave more money to a cause, they showed greater neural sensitivity in the medial prefrontal cortex, a brain area associated with learning and decision-making. This suggests that people who are more grateful are also more attentive to how they express gratitude. It also suggests that gratitude actually improves your brain, your learning, and your decision-making skills. How awesome is that? It can literally make you smarter, and if your decision-making skills become better based on your gratitude, you're less likely to do stupid stuff <laughs> that you later will feel bad about. It's really cool. I took my daughter, the one I told you was born a few days after my dad passed away, my sweet Nora, she's turning 10 uh, next week. I took her to breakfast for her birthday uh, a little early. And I asked her what she wanted to do for her birthday and encouraged her first to think of an event or an activity rather than just getting more stuff. She immediately agreed, she loves events, and that she would rather do something than have something. I was so proud of that. Then she said, Daddy, I want to go shopping for food and stuff for homeless people that they might need and then go drive downtown and find them and give it to them. She's 10 years old and she's wiser than her 47-year-old father. 
I was thinking of, you know, a fun event that we would do, and she was thinking of the poor cold people downtown that she sees holding signs when we drive by. What a beautiful, beautiful soul she has. So this gratitude thing, it's really, really interesting. And right now I'm kind of tearing up, you know, thinking about my dad, thinking about my daughter and how beautiful the two people are. Uh, but uh, let's let's kind of wrap up this gratitude thing a little bit. What we basically found in, the, in that study is that people with mental health challenges, and think about the time of year that we're in, right? Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we have the highest rate of suicide from the things I've read. We have a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. Uh, WebMD says that it's fatigue, it's stress, it's unrealistic expectations, it's the over-commercializations and the feeling that you have to do things that you maybe can't financially do. Uh, sometimes it's the inability to be with one's family and friends. Those are the things that we stress about during the holidays. I think that we can twist this around a little bit to the positive of, of everyone. I was at the Trans-Siberian Orchestra show the other day, and my favorite song, my favorite Christmas song is a non-traditional song that they wrote called Old City Bar. And my favorite words are, if you want to arrange it, this world, you can change it. If we could somehow make this Christmas thing last by helping a neighbor or even a stranger to know who needs help, you need only just ask. And there's so much truth in that. It's not hard to find people who need help, is it? So I'd like to suggest that we have this whole thing backwards. We ought to end the year with Thanksgiving and push Christmas forward a month or so. But we can't do that. The calendar is what it is, and I don't have the power to change it. So what if we ended it with being as thankful at the end of the year as we were supposed to be at Thanksgiving? Um, This is what I'm going to do. I bought a prompted gratitude journal. It's a journal that has prompts to, you know, ask you questions basically so that you don't have to just go and looking at a blank page. It's really cool. It's really simple. It cost me five bucks. You can get it at local bookstores. You can get it online. There's a bunch of them out there. You can pick one that you like. But the gratitude journal thing, especially prompted, I think is very, very cool. I've played around with gratitude journals in the past and I've had some really nice success, but I haven't kept it consistent. Starting tonight... I'm going to write a letter to my dad uh, to honor his uh, the 10th year of his passing and honor his legacy and, and what he means to me. And it's going to be a gratitude letter, just like what they asked these people to write in this study. And then I'm going to spend five minutes in this gratitude journal. And every night between now and the end of the year, I'm going to write in my gratitude journal for five to 10 minutes every single night. I've already recruited uh, uh, one person. I'm going to recruit more, as many as I can, including you to do this very same thing. But first, before you start filling out that journal, write down your thoughts and feelings about the holiday season. Is it, is it a positive for you? Is it a negative? Is there depression? Is there anxiety? Is there energy? Is there happiness? What is it? And I want you to compare those notes at the end of the year with how this holiday season was as you were nightly writing in your gratitude journal. This shows about health and nutrition and fitness, and I often talk about food, and I talk about supplements, and I talk about pharmaceuticals. Today, I haven't mentioned any of those things, and there's a reason for that, because I believe that maybe the most profound things that we can do when it comes to our health is to change the way we think. So I started with conformity and why I believe being a nonconformist has real merit and value. 
And now I'm ending with gratitude because I am 100% convinced that that is critical to how we live our lives and how we feel about ourselves, about the world around us. So write in this journal. Go get one. You can get one today. Um, You can get it in two days if you get it shipped online. Whatever works for you, get one. If you don't have a journal or you don't want to go buy one, use the blank page. That's okay. Write down two or three things that you're grateful for that happened that day. Maybe even a couple of things that you're grateful didn't happen. Does that make sense? Do that and do it every night before you go to bed. And I will be posting my experience on Facebook. I'll be talking about it here on Vitality Radio for our New Year's show. Um, I would love to share some of your thoughts and experiences during this time um, if you're willing to do this with me. I'm going to recruit as many people as I can. I'm going to post about this on Facebook as soon as I'm done uh, recording the show today. And if you'll jump on Facebook, facebook.com slash Vitality Radio, you can join in uh, the conversation. And let's really make this a little bit of a movement. Do it with you. Do it with your kids, right? Kids right now in America, uh, we have a, a, a gratitude problem. We talk about the millennial generation you know, being a bunch of ungrateful snots. And whether you believe that or not is up to you. Uh, I'm not going to say how I feel about it because I don't think that there is such a thing as um, – I don't, I don't like referring to people as a group. I like referring to people as individuals, but we know that we have a problem with gratitude uh, when we see the things on people's Christmas lists, for instance, and so on and so forth. So share this with your family. Have them write. Do it with your kids at night. There's real, powerful, life-changing, brain-changing value in this exercise, and I highly encourage that you do it. Um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to share with you as things go throughout the rest of the year, and uh, we'll have kind of a bigger uh, show on it at the end of the year, the beginning of next year, and uh, we'll hit it hard. I have to go. Thank you so much for listening to me. I, I have so much gratitude in my heart for every person that will give me their ear for even just a few minutes while you're driving from one place to the next to listen to what I have to say on Vitality Radio. It means more than you could possibly know to me. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you like what you hear, go tell somebody. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair, produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham, with very limited help from Jared. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. 
This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.